0: They hit golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle. Murkin' fool, black squirtle and cake roll. Cold blooded with the Sprouts keep. I'm a boss.
1: This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about fear and hope, holding on and letting go. I've been thinking about my father's death and my mother's, and I've been thinking how hard it is to step off a train when the driver convinces us it's the only track to getting where we want to go. Mostly, I've been thinking about the last words a renowned physician said to me hours before my mother died. Why would you do that? and the guilt I carry with me still today. My guest today is Dr. Sam Harrington, who in his new book, At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life, details and demystifies the choices we need to make to end our lives as pleasantly as we've lived them. At Peace is a how-to guide to understand the medical choices that will likely face us and our loved ones when dealing with end-of-life decisions and the decisions that lead us to a better death. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Harrington.
0: Thank you very much. Please call me Sam, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you.
1: So, um, Sam, you say in the book that the book is about exit strategies. Why do we need a strategy?
0: Well, you've just leapt to the (laughs) the harshest perspective on it, but it is, in fact, about exit strategies. Uh, It's about having a plan and having a vision because if we don't have that, if we don't have that ourselves or for our loved ones, then we will lose control to the doctors and the institutions that uh, will be taking care of us. And I don't mean that as a negative uh, reflection on the doctors. It is uh, simply that um, their perspective will be different than the the perspective of the aging patient, and uh, the um, fallback position, uh, the default position in American medicine is to treat and to treat beyond uh, the point that some of us would want to be treated.
1: It's interesting because when I first got the book and started reading it and and um, some of the promotional pieces on it, I I was kind of stopped in my tracks for just a second that that it was described as a how to guide, and I thought, oh, that that didn't fit with my initial impression. And then as I dove in, I realized that it really is this wonderful combination of an experiential. Um, conversation about the process of dying and our our culture's attitudes towards dying and the, the role the medical establishment plays. And then the book also focuses on the how-to part, how to avoid a painful dying process and futile medical care. And I was thinking when I first started reading, could you have ever imagined writing this book early in your practice? You know, you're post-graduation from Harvard College and, and graduated from the University of Wisconsin Medical School. Could you have m- imagined being in a place where you would write this book?
0: I did not. Uh, and when I was a young physician, I was focused on uh, the technological skills required of a highly specialized gastroenterologist, or highly specialized at that time. But during my 35 years of training and practice, I witnessed uh, two things. I, I witnessed medicine change from a healing art to a commercial enterprise, and In parallel I saw my parents age from uh, middle age to old age to dwindle and then subsequently die and I knew that they did not want the uh, medical juggernaut of technology that had been created over my my career to be applied to them because they told me and So I simultaneously matured from someone focused on technology to a physician who appreciated that uh, at an old age, comfort care, uh, and by that I mean uh, emotional support and nursing care, is much more important than prolonging life with excessive technology.
1: Well, and the physician is put into a tough spot. On one hand, their role is to sustain life and also to relieve suffering. And in many of these circumstances, those objectives are contradictory.
0: Exactly. And it's very common at the very end of life for the uh, goal to sustain life, to conflict with the desire to uh, relieve suffering. And, And when that conflict comes into play it is important pertinent uh it is the only option is to have a message from the patient to follow the the patient's choice it's um it's called patient autonomy and and the patient expresses whether they want to prolong their life or relieve suffering and we follow that path and if the patient can't express it we listen to the person designated to speak for them
1: There's an interesting conversation uh, underneath the words of the book, I think, oftentimes as to as, as far as where does responsibility lie for the various choices, and how has that sense of responsibility developed within the medical establishment in our culture? And you talk about the violence of excessive medical technology in some circumstances, and how it can get in the way of a natural death, and that the alternative lies with the patient. And it lies with the patient in taking responsibility, and it also lies with the patient in not fighting to the end. Uh,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Um... I emphasize uh, having a vision, and I'm uh, thinking of fighting to the end. I think of the old Groucho Marx line that he planned to live forever or die trying. Well, that is a kind of vision, but it also is the vision that will uh, end up, will cause a patient to end up in the uh, intensive care unit and probably die there. So, and my goal is with this book is to. Uh, keep people for, out of the intensive care unit, if unless that is their choice, because most people who die in the intensive care unit, in my opinion, uh, would not wa- would not have wanted to die there if they knew that entering it was, was the, that would be the result of uh, being admitted. You,
1: you, uh, you brought a smile to my face because that was my father. He died trying, and he was a huge fan of Groucho Marx, and I hadn't realized <laughs> that there was that connection, so...
0: Well, it is uh yes i, I it 's a great line uh and but it, it it is a vision that I think is many people don't want to follow
1: and um does our cultural do you think our culture do you think have an unnatural fear of death and and where do you think that's come from and, or or an extremely uncomfortable relationship with it, if not an unnatural
0: fear well i'm sure i i 'm sure that the fear has been with us since time immemorial. Uh, I think, however, there are generational differences that um, bias our perspective on death. My father, who's one of the central characters in the book, had his perspective honed by uh, living through the Depression and the Second World War and uh, some and a practical outlook. Um, so he wasn't... Uh, really afraid to die. He um, sorry, he just wanted to have some semblance of control. And yet other generations, and I think my generation, I'm a baby boomer, I'm 66, uh, look at it differently because we've been inundated with I- media impressions of um, successful medical therapies and young actors portraying old patients receiving chemotherapy and uh, dancing in the aisles. And, uh, and I think that there is a large segment of our baby boomer population who think that uh, they will in fact live forever and or live very, very late in life and in a very healthy manner. But there's an old medical aphorism that it is the role of physicians to allow patients to uh, help patients die young as late in life as possible and that is uh, reflects our attitude our the baby boomer attitude that we uh, will live long 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 vigorous lives and we will be vigorous right up to the end which belies the truth if we're lucky enough to be to live to an old age we will suffer some of those consequences
1: well, it's interesting because some of that messaging, I think, also comes from the medical establishment. I, I remember when my father's heart problems first started and after heart surgery, the first meal they served him in um, the care unit was beef bourguignon. And <laughs> I remember chasing the, the, the physician down the hallway and he's like, oh, you know, Ellie, don't worry. We can, we can fix it. You know, we can fix it again. And so right. there's just sort of this attitude um, I think, from both, both consumer and provider.
0: There is, I was addressing the over-expectation of the consumer a moment ago, but you are right The the providers um, find that the path of least resistance is to offer treatment and to uh, plug patients into treatment protocols uh, because it's easier than spending a very long time counseling them that it might not be the best thing for them. And, of course, the over-expectation of consumers is uh, couples with that easy-to-treat philosophy of physicians, and in a synergistic way, they add to the momentum of treatment. Uh, But it is, physicians really find it very hard to say, um, no, this isn't such a great idea, or... um, you need to take more control and we're, we we sh- we shouldn't be doing this it's just easier to treat patients because that's the expectation
1: so how did sitting on the board of trustees for the nonprofit hospice alter your perspective from that of the the traditional physician perspective
0: well it it i was on that board during the middle third of my career and it allowed me to spend um it allowed me to spend time in a hospice that i would not have otherwise done as a super subspecialist dealing with gastrointestinal problems uh i would be um i would work with oncologists or i'd work with intensive care physicians i would work with emergency room people and then i'd step back i wasn't actually there when uh patients were dying but when i joined the board of this hospice I was able to be there um, and to see them uh, and to see how much better it is to die in a hospice setting than in a hospital setting. Now, let me say that I did have patients. I had many patients uh, who died in the sense when I was taking care of them as as an internist, but I always could hide if I wanted into my subspecialty and avoid that. And turn most patients back to their own internists, which I probably did as a young young physician and then which I did less of as an older physician. And I hung around and uh, tried to protect them from certain interventions.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about what's wrong with the American healthcare system. Um, Stephen Nissan, uh author of *Escape Fire*, said, "When medicine became a business, we lost our moral compass." And I'm wondering how how you found yours, and then maybe we can talk about um, the U.S. medical system and, and uh, expenditures versus results. We we'll can start there.
0: All right. Well, I. Not every one of my colleagues would agree with this, but I don't feel that I lost my moral compass. There were many times throughout business meetings of the gastrointestinal section of our my hospital where I would say, but we're only doing that because we make more money at it. Uh, that really doesn't help the patients. We really don't need that piece of extra equipment or we don't need that extra anesthesia. Uh, that really doesn't improve clinical outcomes, but it does allow us to bill more and charge more and therefore make more. So I feel that throughout, I I don't feel I um, lost my moral compass, although they will say that I was outside of the standard insurance plan. So I was charging patients more than their insurance would pay. uh, And I felt that that was my Opportunity to sort of set myself apart as somebody who was trying to care more and offer more time and and less, um, and rush patients through a little bit less, see fewer patients for more money per patient. Um, So most of the decision making that occurs now is highly influenced by how much money people can make, and that and we're trained. Drug companies teach us to uh, prescribe more expensive medicines and avoid generic medicines. Uh, and um, medical device companies uh, create new devices with great at greater expense that they claim are better, but not necessarily are better than the previous generation of devices. So there's a lot of pressure to stay um, ahead of uh, the curve and to look au courant. And most of it is financial rather than really producing practical results for patients.
1: And you talked, too, about how the, the universities and the hospitals and the medical providers, they're, they're set up to be in competition with one another. So, you, you know, and they're driven from the system to want to do more and more procedures, more risky procedures, um, that, that the system itself, not only within, but also, as you mentioned from outside, that it, I know you mentioned that America was only one of two countries that allow direct consumer pharmaceutical advertising. so. It's it's the pressure is coming from the system itself and the competitive competitiveness of it, and that's almost too convenient, and also being driven by by outside the market um, from the, the demand side.
0: Absolutely, uh, at the business level, hospitals look at <clears throat> other hospitals in their geographic region and think of them as competition, and they are. Sp- And they are competing for uh, patients as the commodity. And so hospitals will advertise uh, better accommodations, better this, better that. And they might advertise better outcomes, but in fact, the outcomes are largely equivalent. So they're competing in terms of amenities rather than in terms of quality in general, even though there's an enormous push to improve quality. The quality is so good uniformly that uh, good hospitals compete in other ways and they compete for what they call market share. So they compete for uh, patients by uh, expanding their facilities, expanding their services and then marketing through insurance companies. And that was a lesson that I learned uh, while I was on the board of my local hospital in Washington, D.C., that you, these systems compete and they, they compete in terms of technology to advertise and they compete in terms of uh, making money, but they don't compete in terms of sort of uh, care and appreciation of, of patient circumstances. And-, and I wanted to comment on the direct advertising uh, piece Uh The United States allows direct advertising to consumers. The only other uh, developed country that does that is New Zealand, and it's, of course, trivial in terms of size and um, sort of medical uh, competition. So the reason that the United States allows advertising is it feels it's the the principle that uh, patients are being better informed and then free to make their own decisions but they're not really free to make their own decisions because the situation is quite asymmetric. The the media uh, can co-opt the message and, and they, uh, they influence people to seek more treatment. They influence people to use more medications when, in fact, it's not in their medical interest. And the American Medical Association has opposed direct advertising for some time. I give an example in the book of an... 86-year-old woman who came to me uh, with ulcerative colitis, an inflamed colon that caused lots of diarrhea and was very disruptive to her social life. And I was very sympathetic to that and particularly upset that she didn't respond to medical, um, my medical treatment. And her family then, having noticed an advertisement for a medication that altered the immune system, and this Asked if I would try that and I said that I didn't think it was a good idea in elderly patients because it hadn't been studied very well but that we would seek a special a second opinion from a more specialized person who took care of inflamed colons called inflammatory bowel disease and the specialist saw the patient plugged her into the system and gave her the medication which was not really my goal but that's what happened and as a result, uh, two weeks later, the patient was completely better from the gastrointestinal point of view and quite upset that I hadn't done this earlier. And two weeks after that, she was in the intensive care unit with a double pneumonia because her immune system had been altered. And two weeks after that, she died. So it sounds like a bit of a wandering tale to get from this uh, advertisement to her death in the intensive care unit. But uh, it was quite direct, in my opinion.
1: Well, and I think it's so important because I think it encompasses pretty much our whole conversation. The idea that there are all of these false beliefs and expectations embedded within the system and with the users of the system, and that... It is really creating havoc. Um, you talk about people thinking, you know, part of the mindset that's been created is that encourages excessive medical care and, and medical demand. And part of that is people thinking that taking more medication is good health care.
0: Absolutely. And we are, uh, doctors are bombarded with information that promotes uh, more medications and, uh, and, Patients understand that and hear that, and think that they are uh, supposed to be taking more medications. I, I remember one moment when my father-in-law was watching uh, a football game, and or maybe it was the evening news, and he called me up uh, and said, "Sam, why am I not taking this medicine?" And I thought, "Well, That's the efficacy of of advertising. And I suggested that he had to discuss it with his doctor, but I'd be happy to review the decision.
1: Well, and on the flip side too, when you hear those commercials, the kids, my kids and I, we kind of will be like, is that a commercial or is that a Saturday Night Live skit? Because they'll tell you all the great things about this medication that's going to help you be able to be outside more and help your allergies, except it might kill you in a number of very unpleasant ways.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Um, I think that... There's a concept in medicine called polypharmacy, which, uh, in medicine and pharmaceuticals, and the the idea is that if a person is on more than five medications, in prescription and uh, non-prescription included, it is uh, too difficult for anybody to predict all their interactions. So, and yet, and yet, if an elderly person, or, or anybody over the age of 65, that means, goes into a primary care doctor with asthma and high blood pressure, uh, uh, some blood sugar issues, they are likely to come out with 10 or 12 prescriptions according to uh, current medical standards. And uh, the interaction of those 10 or 12 prescriptions is completely unpredictable.
1: And I think that's so important for people to think about, whether they are the person taking the medications or the family members, because as did with the woman that you described, they can set off a, a chain of events. And it's hard sometimes to sleuth out what are the causes and what are the consequences. Um, I know in my mother's final year, uh, she was seeing a number of doctors, and, and she was on a medication that actually began to accelerate the growth of a brain tumor that she didn't realize she had. And it was really a medication she was put on just because, well, let's just do it. She had taken it. She was feeling fine. But she was taking a test, and they saw something in the results, and so put her on this new medication. And as I read through your book, I thought, oh, my gosh, that, that was our scenario, you know. Um, even when we were taking care of her as she was dying and we were having a hard time having to get up a number of times during the night to help her to the bathroom, and we realized later it was because one of those 17 pills was a diuretic um, that she didn't need, but that was really making it so much more uh, painful and challenging.
0: Absolutely. And so the the first part of my book the first third of the book sort of addresses how the american healthcare system is really not geared to uh, elderly patients it's geared to cure acute illnesses it's geared and uh, and we're very good at that it's geared to uh, respond to acute problems like heart attacks and strokes but it is it is not geared for uh, the chronically ill and all patients above a certain age will be suffering from some chronic illness uh, at some point and so uh, the second third of the book is designed to help people understand uh, the most common chronic illnesses that face us in old age
1: so, I, I want to talk about a couple things. I'm debating where to go next. And I want to talk about what it means to, um, what you advocate, what it means to become ag- aggressively passive and what that means. But I don't know if we should lay, lay out some more details of the broken, um, healthcare system. And, and maybe we'll start okay. with that because these were okay. some facts that, that I was not aware of. And I think I'm pretty savvy. Um, was that the U.S. spends the most, uh, money, but doesn't get the best results, and we're actually ranked lower third to last in many areas.
0: Oh, a- absolutely. The United States spends uh, twice as much as the next developed country in terms of uh, dollars per patient, uh, and yet our life expectancy, our um, infant mortality, a number of very important measures rank. 27, 28 out of the 30 most important, uh, uh, most developed countries. So we're really spending an enormous amount of money that is doing no good whatsoever. It's hard to tease it out. Uh, I don't focus on that in my book, but it is a fact that we spend much more money and don't get commensurate results. And in Medicare in particular, uh, we spend about $550 billion a year On Medicare patients, which is fine. About a third of that, 170 billion, is spent in the last six months of life, and that is uh, all well and good in a sense. I'm not arguing the dollar value, but I would say that if that's being spent, uh, if a third of that money is going in the last six months of life, some of it must be wasted because that that is the last six months of a patient's life, and and it is. Uh, important for people to reflect on that and decide not about the dollars and cents but whether the treatment that they're undergoing is uh, useful or whether it has turned or morphed into futility
1: well and even beyond one more question useful futile or more pleasant or less pleasant has it made that those last six months the best six months of that person's life or the worst
0: Uh, i would Render the opinion that the more money we spend, the less pleasant uh, the the treatment is, uh, because it it would be generally reflect a more aggressive, uh, less useful treatment, and that um, a quieter, less aggressive treatment uh, at home, which would really be emphasizing care as opposed to treatment, is uh, costs less. I'm not, but I'm not arguing that point. On, In terms of dollars and cents, I'm arguing it in terms of, um, in a sense, morality and ethics. Uh, Whenever, throughout the book, I try and make the distinction clear between treatment and care. Uh, Treatment intends to prolong life, and in the United States, we usually treat regardless of the cost. But care is designed to improve the quality of life, and uh, treatment is not always appropriate but caring is.
1: All right. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about what it means to become aggressively passive. Uh, This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Dr. Samuel Harrington uh, about his latest book, most recent book, At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, drop-in radio, listener-supported, streaming live at kdpifm.org. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and we are talking about At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life, and I'm speaking to Dr. Samuel Harrington, the author. Um, So, Sam, let's talk a little bit about, um, now we've laid this rather uh, daunting um, scene, uh, what it means to become aggressively passive.
0: Aggressive passivity is a, a term I apply to Um, the act of saying no to medical care. And it it requires uh, a certain willingness on the part of patients to be more than just passive. It it requires them and their agents to stand up to recommendations. When I was tossing around the idea of writing this book, I hadn't really crystallized it into a uh, book proposal until I had a conversation with my father, which defined aggressive passivity for me. We were discussing the uh, treatment options for a ballooned blood vessel in his abdomen, an aortic aneurysm, which was uh, growing and was uh, threatening an impending rupture. If it ruptured, it, he would die within hours uh, so we were discussing treatment options to pr- to strengthen it. One would be major surgery, which three surgeons and his internist had recommended. And then there was a more temporary procedure like a cardiac catheterization for the aorta, which would have strengthened it and probably slowed the growth and stopped the growth for several years. But my father was completely ambivalent about doing anything. He was, he looked at me and he asked me why would I want to fix something that is going to carry me away the way that I want to go? And, and that reflected a, an aggressive passivity on his part. He would, he would not allow, he, his plan was to not allow surgeons to operate. He would decline surgery. He would take palliative medications and he would pass away. Now, uh, that is a, 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 uh, it's kind of a naive vision, but it, it got us thinking when we can come back to that in a little bit. Other forms of aggressive passivity are to uh, simply stop seeing physicians, uh, stop doing screening tests after a certain age, because screening tests in old age are more likely to find problems that won't be of any importance than to, to find problems that are important. Uh it can, it can take the form of uh, canceling appointments or stopping medications or indeed stopping or refusing treatments.
1: Well, you say that in old age screening exams, studies show that annual exams, screening exams associated, um, are associated with inflating costs. And they don't, I mean, the more important piece, as you say, it's not about the money. It's about the fact that in relation to that, they don't reduce morbidity or mortality. And... Um, your dad had said that, you know, he wasn't focused on his diseases as something to be treated and, and fixed and cured. And there's this crazy contradiction going on, I think, because most elderly people side with your dad as far as they want to die at home. They don't want to die in the hospital hooked up to all this machinery and um, out of control. And yet the, the train that they, they seem to often step on, that's exactly where it leads.
0: Correct. It's like a conveyor belt that just uh, feeds people into more and more treatment. And I've been there many times. If I've started treating a patient, it's much harder to stop because the treatment isn't working well. Um, the oh, I lost my train of thought. I was going to say.
1: Well, yeah, you call uh, it the assembly line of care.
0: Yeah, um, I have a there. I have an example in the book of a. Of an elderly person who was sent to me after a screening physical examination because she had a trace of blood in her stool. Now, a trace of blood in the stool is very important if you are uh, forty or fifty, but a trace of blood in the stool at age eighty-five isn't isn't nearly as important. And I, in principle, a, the typical gastroenterologist would recommend a colonoscopy and a stomach examination with a scope to look for an ulcer or a tumor or a cancer that was causing the blood. Well, uh, she had had a colonoscopy recently enough that I didn't think that was worthwhile repeating. And so we examined her stomach and we found a small growth uh, which I deemed to be fairly inconsequential in the long run because she didn't have much of a long run left and yet was certainly adequate to explain the slight bleeding she had. So I'd recommended to her that if she were my mother, I would not uh, operate on this or try and take it out with one uh, scope test after another. And she sent, she tended to agree with me, but her internist didn't. So he sent her to another physician, gastroenterologist, who performed three or four upper endoscopies to take the this small growth out. Fortunately, the patient did not personally have a complication but unfortunately her sister who was accompanying her uh, slipped on the linoleum floor in the hospital and broke her hip uh, and pelvis and as a result they learned the lesson that they need not follow up as recommended for more upper endoscopies to make sure this growth wasn't going to come back or hadn't started to come back and that's just sort of that's just an example I know it Uh, of how screening tests lead to unintended consequences. And if she had had major bleeding from this uh, growth, yes, we would have been forced to do something and we would have. But uh, usually these uh, looking for problems in elderly patients, you're going to find things that are going to lead you down a pathway that uh, will basically uh, cause some treatment that you don't want.
1: Well, and consequences from that treatment as well, right? That people may not be aware of. You you may have an elective surgery. They're going to put you on drugs with that. Your usual regime is going to be disrupted, and so you're going to lose strength and and physical stamina. You may be put on blood thinners that are then going to have um, reactions to everything else. Uh, you're going to be put in bed, and so bed sores. You're going to be in the hospital that you know opens you up to staph infection, and even within these elective surgeries, it so much more likely that you'll have an unintended consequence, that something may be torn or disrupted or lead to to another
0: problem. Uh, Those are all excellent and valid points. And those are points that I made to my father when I told him that the advice to repair his aortic aneurysm was advice that I couldn't follow, because it would have meant days in the hospital, probably several days post-operatively in the intensive care unit, probably a week or two more, possible pneumonia, possible nursing home placement for a convalescence or complications, and it, that kind of surgery at 88, which is when it was proposed, really threatens uh, the independent lifestyle of a, of a person, uh, and I didn't want it, I'd, and my father's independence was much more important to him Than some other aspect of his health. So he was happy to uh, avoid that and uh, surgery. And ultimately, he did undergo the alternative procedure that I'd recommended, because uh, I wanted him to meet my granddaughter, his first great grandchild. And he was willing to undergo that procedure. But several years later, When his uh, aneurysm was re-expanding and his doctors uh, advised him that it was re-expanding and he would have to have the procedure repeated, he said, no, thank you. Uh, He called all his physicians, said, thank you very much for the care to date, and I will not be uh, visiting you in the future.
1: And I think, again, we want to make it clear, you're not advocating against medical treatment. You're advocating for conscious medical treatment, for people to become medically empowered and take a look at the different paths and make a value-based choice on what their real intentions are and, and goals are for the future, which is exactly what your father did. He thought, all right, I want to go to this, this, um, Event. I know at one point there was a wedding that right. he someone to go or, or to see a, a grandchild or great-grandchild that was about to be born. And so he made very conscious choices as far as his medical treatment to lead him to a desired goal for, for a purpose.
0: Absolutely. I, I, I strongly believe that people should choose to, if they choose to have treatment, uh, that is a, an excellent choice. But they should have a, a backup plan should the treatment uh, fail or get complicated. And should they decline treatment based on their understanding that the benefit is not what they wanted, uh, that is also a good plan. I simply am advocating for patients to make uh, better, more informed decisions and to uh, think through the consequences as best they can and to get their physicians to help them to do that.
1: And it seems like, too, one that matches your values and your personality that, you know, some people, they may be fight to the end. You know, when my father could barely Mm -hmm. speak, he was still saying, surgery, surgery under his breath. And and we can kind of laugh at it because you know that's who he was, um, but my mother my mother had a had a dev- very different path in mind and, and she wanted to die at home and, and did, um, and so being really aware of sort of who you are and and what you're choosing is important and also understanding I think if we've we've talked a little bit about the the medical system. Um, you talk about doctors craving, you know, uh, have the need to make diagnoses. That's what they do. And with a diagnosis in hand, they can then develop a treatment plan. And, and that's sort of their, their um, modus operandi.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, and we're always more comfortable, or we're very uncomfortable treating people without a diagnosis. That is to say, aggressive treating doctors want to have a diagnosis because then they can determine how well their treatment is going to work. And, and not having a diagnosis and floundering with treatment makes doctors uncomfortable. But when patients decline tre- uh, aggressive treatment, then we can be comfortable with uh, offering compassionate care. And that is the distinction that is made uh, based on the patient's choice of declining treatment. But if a patient, you know, doctors do in fact crave diagnoses because that's what we're trained to do. And and then we know what our results will be within uh, within the scientific ability to understand whether we're going to get a good result or not based on experience.
1: So you also say some medical professionals want us to believe that the dying process is so complicated that we must leave it in their hands. And I think some patients want to believe that as well, because then they avoid responsibility for making a a choice and a a decision in an area that's really, really emotional and scary. Um, How did your patients react when you started encouraging them to make choices and advising them against some invasive tests and treatments?
0: Well, you, for better or worse, doctors can have an enormous amount of influence on patients in their consultation rooms, so I could usually convince patients what was appropriate or not as I saw it, but if I felt that my advice was outside of their comfort zone, I would seek another opinion, as I did with um, the woman with the uh, Ulcerative colitis, uh, who came to me because of the advertisement for this immune-changing immunomodulator medication. Uh, So doctors really have an enormous amount of influence, and they have to be cognizant of of what they say to patients because we have this asymmetrical relationship where we know more than the patient, and we can massage the data to make the patient do what we want. Uh, and we have to be very careful that we don't massage it so that we avoid what the patient wants. And it's very important for us to understand what the patient wants. It really has to, you know, it's a question of trust and a question of give and take. But you, you um, I, I try not to influence patients. Uh, and if I felt that they were uncomfortable with my opinion, I would be very helpful I mean, I would be uh, very interested in getting a second opinion for them, uh, or uh, to re- allow them time to reflect on it.
1: So, how does a patient or their family members be able to recognize mid-cycle when it may be time to consider refusing a treatment that's only going to prolong a painful dying
0: process? Well, two things. it's very uh, it's very difficult if you're uh, if you're in an aggressive uh, care setting, to slow it down. But it is possible if you have outlined, uh, stipulated in advance, some limitations. And I'll try and get back to that in a minute. It is very common for treatments to be applied to the chronically ill and, and a pattern of treatment that occurs where the patient gets a treatment uh, or gets a symptom, then they get a treatment, then they have a bit of a decline, then they plateau, <clears throat> then they develop another symptom, have more treatment, have a decline, plateau there in the terms of their performance status. And if you see this cycle <coughs> of treatments, decline and plateau, uh, it, you have time to reflect on that and hopefully say, you know what, the, this past series of treatments predicts my future treatments—they're not really effective. I'm going to stop here, uh, and then turn to your physician and say, "I don't really want to be hospitalized anymore for this. I don't want to have more treatment for this other than palliative treatment." <coughs> Excuse me, but let me go back to the intensive care setting for a minute. It's very difficult to stop that kind of treatment, but it puts in mind, puts me in mind of a case of a patient that is not in my book, who came in and had uh, a little cautery applied to her colon to stop some bleeding. She was about 85 to 90 years old, and this was completely appropriate, very good care. But she developed a little bit of uh, uh, infection around that site, and she was put in the hospital and given antibiotics. The surgeons said the infection was too small to justify surgery, so the antibiotics were continued, but overnight, the infection spread into her blood, and she went into septic shock. She was then placed in the intensive care unit, and um, septic shock is where germs and toxins sweep through the blood system and damage tissue uh, throughout the body, the the liver, the kidneys, the extremities, and uh, she ended up with kidney damage, brain damage, and amputated uh, one foot and two hands because of gangrene and she was then went went home um, to a nursing home and uh, was never the same again of course and my my point is if she had gone in and to the hospital and with the stipulation that septic shock should not be treated, she would rather have palliative care rather than aggressive care for septic shock. She would, have, of course, died of septic shock with palliative care, but she would have saved herself uh, months of uh, or weeks of agony in the uh, intensive care unit and months of debility in a nursing home before she ultimately died. Of kidney failure. Um, so if you, if you can say this in advance, because you and your family have thought it through, and I must say that the vast majority of people do not think this far ahead, uh, you can sort of put a line in the sand that uh, most intensive care unit doctors would ultimately accept.
1: And there are other lines to put in the sand as well, as far as um, resuscitation and calling 911 and what you want your home care to look like and when to and how to involve hospice. And those are all outlined in in great detail and very, very helpfully in your book.
0: Well, thank you. And I I, I want to emphasize that I'm I'm saying things that uh, sound cold and are uh, difficult discu- discu- discussion topics, but in the book, I, I really use my father's voice and uh, and the voice of other people to, um, to portray these ideas because these are not, I'm not telling people what to do. I'm not arrogant in that way. I'm suggesting that people think about things uh, differently, uh, think, think about their expectations, think about the doctor's Um, goals and plans, think about their own, the the patient's vision, and um, come to another way of looking at it, knowing that uh, treatment and endless treatment isn't always the right way to go.
1: And I think uh, you do a wonderful thing in the book as well to outline and and um, show what the other path can look like and that if people really want to make choices that are in line with their desire to have a peaceful death or an at-home death, that there are very specific steps that they may need to take and um, and conversations to have and uh, papers to put in place to make sure that that's where it goes.
0: Exactly. it is It is completely... F- fundamental that if you want to die at home, you have to know when you are going to say no to medical care and understanding understanding the limits of medical care, understanding your vision uh, of where and how you want to die can come together and will uh, allow you hopefully to find the time to say no, if that is your inclination.
1: One of the numbers in the book was CPR survival rates for the old and infirm, and it was 0 to 8% chance of surviving to discharge.
0: My father uh, decided that he would uh, assume a do-not-resuscitate status about uh, eight years before he died, even though he appeared to be in very good health. And I was very comfortable with that because... In my opinion, the chance he would survive, is suppose he had collapsed at home and suppose at, uh, some some witness, uh, he lived in a residential hotel, suppose somebody had called 911. Uh, I estimate the chance of his survival at that point as being uh, even worse than in, I wrote in the book. I would say it would be about zero to two percent chance of coming back to his apartment, and there would be about a 13% chance he would uh, die in the intensive care unit, and an 80% chance he would not have even survived to get to the hospital. But, but by not surviving and getting to the hospital, he would have achieved his goal of a quick and um, uh, death without a prolonged suffering. So I was very comfortable with his choosing that status.
1: I think it's so important for people to think about some of these choices before, and also family members that think they they may be involved in the last stages of someone's life, because you may not realize what the consequences of calling 911 are, even if there is a non-resuscitation paperwork signed. And you may not know how to go about finding home care or hospice, or how those really can um, benefit you. in. And you, you talk about that with your dad, that he was sort of not not that appreciative of hospice early on or, or understanding its value. But as family members, you certainly did.
0: Yes. Uh, my father, when my mother went into hospice with her lung cancer diagnosis, my father was very um, resistant because he did not like people visiting. He did not like facing the decisions, uh, even though he, he had a fairly Tough and practical approach to it all, he simply didn't like to be reminded of it just the way none of us do, uh, and he didn't know that what hospice was offering because they supplied medical equipment, but they didn't supply m- much nursing care. but I tried to explain to him as I try in the book to to explain that hospice is an alternative system that was protecting my mother from an emergency room visit should uh, she fall and bruise herself or it was protecting her from an emergency room visit should she uh, have a seizure because of her her lung cancer had metastasized to the brain and, and, or should she get suddenly short of breath and that is because hospice uh, offers in advance equipment and medications to care for potential problems, so with lung cancer, they know you're going to get short of breath at some point, so they supply oxygen before that occurs. They know that seizures are a potential problem, so they su- supply anti-convulsant uh, therapy before it occurs. This is in the house. They know that um, uh, pain is a potential problem, so narcotics are in the house. Uh, they know that bed sores from uh, are a problem, so they supply a hospital bed with an air mattress. Etc. So uh, they're protecting. They protected my mother from unnecessary trips to the emergency room, and fortunately, she didn't have um, these other catastrophic symptoms like seizures. But um, but she did need pain medication, and she did need oxygen. And uh, again, I tried to emphasize to my father that sometimes what they do is just be in the background and. Um, offer this protection. I, I, I felt very good about it.
1: Another um, part that's in the second half of the book, and you discuss it earlier on in the decision-making process, but the refusal of food and water and how that also can be a, a conscious choice when it seems the time is
0: right. Well, this is something that was introduced to me in about 1990 when I was on the board of the hospice uh, in Washington, Uh, that I said was during the midpoint of my career and I was introduced to this concept of refusing food and fluid uh, as a way of hastening death and I saw it put into action on several occasions uh, and realized that all my patients who were dying in the hospital were ended up uh dying uh prolonged deaths because they could not eat but we were giving them fluid through the vein which just uh, prolonged the process without actually making them better. And for those uh, that did uh, give up fluid ultimately, uh, they passed away more quickly and comfortably. And dehydration is really the physiologic process that occurs when uh, people uh, refuse to eat and drink. And Uh, And yet, and my father, who was very interested in hastening his death, uh, would not uh, discuss this with me. And this is where I I, I point out that there's an asymmetric relationship between um, doctor and patient because I was advising my father that I felt that if he wanted to hasten his death, this was an option. But the more I... but. It would be inappropriate for me to push that on him, and he never, uh, he never um, chose to follow through with that.
1: And, and he liked food too much. He says, <laughs> "I loved that." He's like, "Oh, that is one of the reasons for staying around. Why, why would I stop that?"
0: Right. He was. Uh, he he never lost his appetite, and I'm uh, my sisters and I don't understand why. Uh, but his one of the last coherent sentences he a- said was to ask for. Uh, a higher quality marmalade on his English muffin. (laughs) It was. So values
1: and priorities, right? It's what we've been talking about and and going the way you want to go.
0: Yep. And he, uh, he got his marmalade and that was a good day.
1: So uh, I'll just end our conversation with a, a quote you have in the book from Woody Allen. He says, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. So I definitely think we've got to get him a copy of this book. Um, this is Ellie Newman on Voices of Anna. That got me thinking. And I've been speaking with Dr. Sam Harrington uh, about his recent book, At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. And thank you very much, Sam. And where, where can people go to get, get the book and more information?
0: Well, I think uh, my website, samharrington.com uh, has almost all the information about the book. It, it has uh, information for contacting me, uh, and uh, it has some click-throughs to buy books through various uh, organizations, uh, but uh, the book is now available in most uh, Barnes and Noble, for example, and should be available in your local bookstore, or certainly they can order it. All right. I'm promoting local bookstores.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure speaking with you.
0: Ellie, it was very, uh, I I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you very much. And thank you for uh, reading the book so carefully.
1: Thank you. So, Sam, I just want to say before we hang up, I'll I'll edit this out. But um, this is the first interview, I guess, in five years when I was preparing for it. And I I had made a mistake. I thought we were going to talk on Tuesday originally. And I I was just about to leave the house and I was just printing out my uh, outline and I burst into tears. And I realized that I was still carrying so much guilt around my mom's death because I felt like I had let her down um, because she had had this very fast growing brain tumor and we had had um, encouraged her early on with all of her doctor's advice to do radiation, and so it was had been such a painful, painful process for her. And she, you know, they, the the car ride there was excruciating, and then they put that awful mask on her head, and and moving her at all was uncomfortable. And and as we were going through that and talking to her doctors more and more and doing more research, we realized well, they were not advocating that this had much chance, if any, of helping in any way. Um, mm-hmm. And so we started thinking, well, why are we doing this? We ended up at Cedar sinai I think the, the ho- shifted hospitals, my brother and I, and talking, talking to Dr. Black, who is, you know, one of the leaders in that field. And he was the one who looked at us when we explained what we'd been doing and just said, why would you do that to your mother? And uh, she ended up dying. We got home, and, you know, I was here at her um Uh, I was the one who made the the medical decisions out of the five kids. And as we drove home, I said, okay, we're, we're done. We're not doing any more treatment. And um, then she ended up passing away that afternoon.
0: It is. uh, I think that medical futility is easy to recognize in retrospect. And it's, it's when a patient or pardon me, a family member reflects on what they did to their loved one as the last aggressive treatment and asks themselves, or says to themselves, I wish we hadn't done that, that they have defined futile treatment. Um, I wish I'd gotten that into the uh, interview, because that's the way I look at it. And with experience, as uh, the doctor at Cedars-Sinai was experienced, and he knew uh, this wasn't going to help, and he asked you, why would you do that? And that is what uh, an experienced doctor brings to the table.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's crushing. Well, you can put it in your next interview.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll I'll try and do that. All
1: right, okay. Um,
0: I, it was very pleasant. I'm, um, I'm, I'm so glad you to have this opportunity. I appreciate it.
1: Great, me as well. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.